Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Rich. I'm Kat. There's no lingerie in I have lingerie. Well, yes, you do. You have great lingerie, but you also have the cotton underwear that's been washed a thousand times and it's hanging on the thing. And, and they have it too. It's just I don't have to see it because it's not the fantasy. Do you understand? I'm tired of the fantasy because it doesn't really exist. And there are never really any surprises, and it never really... Delivers? Delivers. Right. I'm tired of it. Well, in this episode, we're talking about High Fidelity from the year 2000, the film adaptation of Nick Hornby's wildly popular novel of the same name that came out five years before. And the relationship we're dropping the needle on tonight is the one between Rob and Laura, played by John Cusack and Eben Hialya, respectively. Now, as we start the film, we meet... Rob and Laura and they're in the middle of a breakup uh, and she's moving out of the flat so I mean when when we look at this there's already you know so much history and we're at the point where the relationship is ending it's easy to see from the beginning that they're not happy but what do you think got us to this point? Well we find out a little bit don't we as the film goes on about what might have been going on between them like we find out that Rob slept with someone else while Laura was pregnant. He didn't know that she was pregnant. And that after that happened, he also borrowed a large sum of money from her, which he wasn't able to repay. And then they also had a conversation where she asked him if he ever thought about seeing other people. And he said that sometimes he did, just like anyone else, but then he sort of, you know, it transpired that Laura might have been interested in a man called Ian, who used to live in the same building as Rob and Laura, and then had since moved out. So, yeah, there's quite a lot of stuff going on between them. And I suppose most of us can relate to one or more of those things that have been kind of going on behind the scenes. Do you have any idea how long they've been together? I mean, it's not made clear in, in the film. I think, I mean, we, we've both read the book in preparation for this and, and it suggests that they've been together for a few years. I mean, not certainly not a decade or anything like that, but I'd suggest at least three or four years. And this is the kind of thing that you know, as, as a motivation for this, this is the opening of the film and we're at the end of a relationship. And it's strange that throughout the course of this and, and both the book and the film are very much from, from Rob's point of view. And this is kind of one of the interesting things about it is we always see everything from him. It's his life. It's his flashbacks. It's his point of view of how things have got to the point they're at. Laura moves out of the flat and John Cusack is introducing us to everything that's going to happen in the film. It's difficult when throughout the film we see that this comes up and the fact that they've had a life together. And I think there's a point in there where he makes reference to the fact that she's changed so much from how they were when when they first got together. Um, yes. The way the way she dresses, her hair, and I guess that's you know from Rob. You know he's seeing her change. And then Laura's point is that she hasn't changed at all. The, the quote, you're the same person you used to be and I'm not. I mean, that's quite a, I wouldn't say it's an accusation, but it's definitely something that would be a pointed 
thing to say to someone when you're leaving them. Yeah, I think that you, there's something, you're right, there's something about the way that Laura's life has been going recently, probably in her professional life, that's provoked a shift in her inwardly. One thing that's interesting when you're reading the book and when you're watching the film is that it's made clear, isn't it, that Liz, who's Laura's friend, thinks that Rob and Laura are good together and that also Laura's family like Rob. And in the moment in High Fidelity where you pick up with Rob and Laura, you don't necessarily get the the impression of what Rob has been doing exactly in Laura's life to make to endear himself so much to her friends and family do you or do you what do you think about that because I I'm sometimes when I'm watching the film I can think why do they all think she's so great with him you see and this is the this from his point of view from his the way that the film and the and the book and the story is is that it's him and is he once they break up he goes on this journey of discovery of what happened to previous relationships and almost suggesting is this breakup a a symptom of all the previous breakups and the relationships that have gone wrong beforehand is that that's kind of how things work is there's always a shadow there's always an echo of a former relationship and those couplings make you the person you are and you know everything about him you know the first thing he does when she moves out is go back to rating breakups, you know, his top five breakups. And he talks about the ones previously and the ones that they've hurt him, he's hurt them. And this is something that we learn about him and that he's doing all this to kind of justify why he's, why this relationship is failing or has failed is that because what's happened in the past and I guess you don't go into a relationship as it's not a clean slate every time. You know, there's there's often baggage or anger or something. You know, some some relationships end quite amicably, and it's you might have learned a few things. Who knows? But yeah. um, in in this scenario, I think he's he goes straight into reflection in that period where he's trying to rate everything. It's a very male thing you know it's like a (laughs) marking things out of 10 but he makes lists of top fives it's um I suppose it's it's an interesting thing but I don't don't know I mean if from from the other point of view you wonder I mean what do you think about Laura's how is she going to look at this as she's walking out of that house with a bag you know how do you think she would be reflecting on this breakup well the the thing is that's interesting about what watching it now is that one? I don't think that when I was younger, when I w- either watched the film or I or I uh, read the book, it occurred to me really how how much of an interesting choice it is that Laura decides to move in with Ian rather than either moving in with a friend temporarily while she looks for her own place, or you know, a family member, or just I mean, she's obviously got enough money to you think maybe go and rent an apartment of her own but she decides instead to move in with this new guy and when I watch it now I think she looks like someone maybe who's trying to provoke a reaction rather than someone who's actually making a serious decision 
to move out and start a new life because I think maybe otherwise you try and get to a more neutral space because it's let's face it it's very rare that you meet someone particularly if it overlaps with another relationship and if you move straight in with them you're going to be putting yourself in an environment that is you know you're with a brand new person you're trying to digest a breakup it's very likely that you're just going to go straight back to your old relationship just because this new environment with a new person will be so overwhelming. So I've I've started to wonder whether Laura never really intended to leave Rob permanently. I kind of got that idea because there is the that provocation in there that she knows that Rob dislikes Ian or Ray. And there's even a joke about it when he asks, what do I call him, Ian or Ray? And she says, Ray, I hate Ian. So, <laughs> so do I. Um, and, and there's this kind of thing, like you say, you know, she, she is probably fortunate enough that she would be able to go to a hotel or, or stay somewhere else, you know, to, to get away. Yeah. But I think she makes it quite clear she's not looking for a relationship with, with Ian. But the fact that that's how it starts she's moving straight in from the shared flat into this new guy's house there's a lot of I mean there would be a lot of pressure on that immediately and and as we find out you know throughout the course of the film Rob I I won't use the word pursuing but he, he kind of makes it quite clear to Laura you know why did you break up with me he wants her back um she's clearly the quality in his life that without her he's nothing he descends to being a man child which to be honest a lot of his behavior kind of demonstrates that he might well be yeah Um, the section where he speaks to Liz about his behavior he's phoning he's he's turning up outside the new place and the very interesting point that she makes is that at the beginning there's three people in this triangle there's Rob Laura and Ian right and then what his behaviour is doing is forcing them closer together. It's better, isn't it? If you can let the person that you love just sort of think freely, then if they come back to you, then at least you know that you won't have bullied them into it. Well, they're coming back to you of their own free will. So, But it's quite. I think the whole film is quite interesting at making you think about jealousy. Like, if you have a relationship and one person goes and sleeps with another person or they leave you for another person and you feel no sexual jealousy at all, you're probably in a relationship that already feels kind of quite platonic. But on the other hand, if it's just jealousy that's keeping you together, that's also maybe a problem. And that's the only thing about the film is that the relationship between the two of them, and I was watching it this time, I thought, I think she knows. In fact, I think there's a deleted scene that we watch where she actually expresses, Laura expresses to Liz that she thinks that it's just because she's with someone else now that he's gone into overdrive with wanting to get her back. And that when she's actually with him, he's quite often sort of interested in other people anyway. And you do wonder whether his passion for Laura, how much of it is territorial and how much of it is about who she is, you know? Definitely. And I think the way that the story structured, we meet them at the low point. And when we think about the chemistry between Rob and Laura, we're at a point where the chemistry is so negative. We haven't seen, you know, we're at the start of the film, we don't have that initial scene of them being happy together, doing fun things or doing the kind of stuff that you expect a couple in love to do because we're starting at the starting at the end 
and that's something that we have to get through flashbacks we have to get as you go throughout the course of the film and it's strange to look at normally i guess in, in a more straight linear film you get they meet they fall in love there's a hiccup somewhere down the line they get over it probably and get back together at the end and everything's happy whereas this it's kind of it's almost backwards really because after yeah. the pursuit by the time they really takes a lot to get to a position where they are happy and that's really in the last sort of 10 minutes of the film but the chemistry between them it is throughout most of the film as ex boyfriend and girlfriend and seeing that is interesting that that's the dynamic uh, to me it's that they are exes throughout most of the film yeah. um and trying to find you know are they going to be friends are they going to get back together is his the behavior that he shows outside Ian's flat is exactly what we see for the flashback when how he reacted to being dumped by Charlie yeah you know he's out outside in the rain I guess this seems to be quite a male thing. They lose a partner and have to become this obsessive and have to do really extreme. It seems like it might be a sort of bravado, heroic thing. But from a female point of view, mm. do, do you think that that has been written sympathetically or do you see Rob as a kind of pathetic character on his kind of last stand? We were talking about it the other day. I was I was thinking about it, if you compare it to a classic romantic comedy like when Harry met Sally and I know that it's incredibly different for all kinds of reasons but in a film like that you're made very aware of what the two people what their preferences are in life what their tastes are what they do what the kind of you know the things are that make them happy or what they don't and in this in this book and film there's a quote actually it's not in the film but I wrote it down just because I think it's quite it's quite key Laura says in the book to Rob she says you have potential I'm here to bring it out and that's quite interesting in terms of how Laura sees herself in the relationship and what what she thinks she's bringing to the table in in comparison to Rob because it's almost as if she's kind of saying that her main purpose in the relationship is to make Rob the best person he is rather than her coming to the table with just as much of a a kind of full full life and full complex personality as his if you see what I mean I mean this is always I suppose the the issue if you come to it now because we know it's Rob's story it's Rob's life it's it's everything about him and and Laura is very much a secondary character here And, and when we've been thinking about the motivations that the characters show throughout this and and it's kind of demonstrated because we use Dick and Barry in the record shop as kind of they're almost like there's there's the exposition there when they're having a conversation about how Laura and Ian haven't had sex yet and they compare it to going to see the evil dead at the cinema <laughs> yeah and, you know and everything and I mean it's really well written the fact that everything hinges on the word yet um, yeah and I like the way that Barry said well you can't be that desperate to go otherwise you'd have seen it already um, yeah and then that motivates the fact that Laura and Ian haven't slept together. Rob finds yeah. this out and immediately goes out <laughs> and sleeps with Marie de Salle. And it's to the tune of We Are the Champions. <laughs> now, I want, uh, I want your perspective on, on this because I was, I was reminded of it this time. I was thinking that, that idea that as a man you could be 
absolutely consumed with sexual jealousy over someone that you're keen on the idea of them sleeping with someone else and then when you find out that they're not or you have a little break in that you go and sleep with someone else at the same time as feeling incredibly jealous about them how how accurate do you think that is <laughs> um, honestly it's probably is quite accurate I think there is <laughs> you know there, there's always an element of competition and I think yeah. in some relationships you do have there may well be a, a curio around what's your number or you know how many people have you been with before or whatever and there's that and there is you know and I think as well for someone like Rob knowing that she hasn't slept with him yet and I mean while it's not that easy you know even if you're John Cusack you can't just walk into a bar and pick up a woman you know there's still and it's something that gets picked up more in the book that the relationship between Rob and Marie Mm. there's there's so many mentions and I know we talk about it on social media around the the anxieties around this you know this isn't Rob as some kind of sexual tyrannosaurus no it's actually it's my favorite bit of the book that it always has been I just think it's a really brilliantly written little bit of it just showing you I think actually it did teach me a little bit about men actually I, I it, it's reading that bit as a woman quite good at informing you of the kind of anxieties that a man goes through when he goes home with a woman and seeing things from his point of view so I think it's I think they did they were going to include a bit of that in the film but then they deleted the the scene which I think is a real shame because in the film there's something about the simplicity of him just going home and sleeping with Marie where you kind of think well now he just kind of comes off a bit like James Bond (laughs) he's just like gone and effortlessly done that whereas in the book it's much more mingled isn't it with feelings of anxiety feelings of depression he doesn't even kind of know if he does want to sleep with it it's all a bit more ambivalent whereas in the film it's much more sort of smoothly done but then the, the the whole way that sex is handled throughout the film we've got this where rob is according to the film he is just god's gift and when we have rob and laura after her dad's died at the funeral yeah. um she in a kind of emotional deflection kind of way they they have sex in the car because she wants to feel something hopefully positive um yeah. away from the grief and everything I, I mean it's it's i suppose from what you've read and seen in in the past is that is that a welcome break from the idea that sex or intimacy can be used as it's not just a kind of happy ever after thing but it's actually there's something a bit more emotional in there yeah I think that if you're I think if you're in that kind of state and um, you're feeling a very intense grief then I think that it's something that's quite recognizable that you might want to go back to the place that feels most like home and so there's something about them getting together in the car and then her moving back in with him that I can really see how that would precipitate that kind of um, reconciliation, both both physical and emotional. But I don't know whether it would last. I think you're in quite a strange state when you're, you know, in that kind of period of really intense grief and this idea that that if you if you go through that kind of trauma, then it will it might kind of just reset 
the things in your life I think is a is a is something that might work for for this kind of narrative but I don't know if it would I don't know would withstand you know the things that have been going wrong in the relationship before I mean can you recognize anything that happens in the film that suggests that maybe the two of them are going to have a different relationship to the one that went wrong originally see the thing is is that when this all happens and, and even after they slept together in the car you know she says i'm too tired not to be with you yeah there is the the concession that it's kind of it's the easy option um yeah. is to get back together and and you know all we've seen is that he wants her back she is comfortable there and we've got you know, towards the end where he essentially proposes to her over a lunchtime beer because it's he wants to make life easier he doesn't want to have to worry about things and it comes across you know and she says very romantic and the fact that he's clearly grown as a person because he's thinking of this and I, I just find it strange that you know does that time apart is it just a sticking plaster or is there real sort of motivation for the change I think um, you know we still see some behaviors from him when they're walking away from the record market you know kind of <laughs> gr- grilling her about Marvin Gaye and Art Garfunkel you know and I guess that's maybe it is a you know everyone has their kind of geeky things and if, if you're in a relationship you kind of have to poke a little bit of fun you do wonder that he you know and again covered perhaps slightly more in the book but yeah. his knowledge and his geekery around music in this case they're so prevalent you always wonder is there a snobbery in there that you just I, I i find it hard to see any real change i think this is unfortunately it's the kind of relationship you kind of think that within three to six months they'll be back to square one again I can understand that you know she might not have been that interested in music and he was a DJ and she quite liked him bringing that into her life and I think quite often people with their partners don't know they they introduce you to new things and that's lovely but it's unclear what she's introduced to him you never really quite get what it is about her I know that there's a little passage where he sort of talks about how he loves how she walks around and how she she smells and things but in terms of just the influence of what she's bringing into his life he doesn't seem that entertained by her he it almost feels like that's why he's sleeping with other people or developing crushes on other people he doesn't find Laura massively compelling and that she seems to be oddly satisfied with him being a bit ambivalent about her even that speech at the end that she seems to think is romantic where he kind of says yeah, what did start developing a crush on someone else? But I'm sort of sick of thinking about other people. So, you know, I I kind of think, that's all he's giving you. It's not necessarily hugely inspiring. But maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm being too idealistic. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, I feel the same way. And, you know, the fact that two days before this grand speech, he was making a mixtape for a girl he fancied who worked for the newspaper. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and throughout the whole story there's these ideals that he's grown up with that he seems even at whatever age he is I suppose I don't know mid mid 30s and he's still kind of expecting the lingerie to be the kind of glamorous stuff and and he's disappointed by the fact that you know in reality you know there are <laughs> I mean they, they refer to it in the books as the shrunken tatty M&S scraps appearing on radiators all over the house yeah. Um, your lavacious schoolboy dreams of adulthood 
surrounded by exotic lingerie. And it's, you know, in his mid thirties, there is an element of double standards in yeah in his outlook, whether it's on sleeping with other people or your partner, you know, that the sleeping yet. And there's also the element of that. I mean, if he's expecting, you know, someone to be dressed all up to the nines all the time, I mean, I've a massive t-shirt envy of his and, and you know, it's, it's been pointed out that I probably hang around on, on train station platforms looking a bit robbed from high fidelity with my headphones. Oh, well, and, don't get me, and, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a really, like, I'm, John Cusack in that film obviously looks, it's a strong look and that's why I think a lot of people want to emulate it. But it's a grungy look, isn't it? It's not a, mm. it's not something where you, you'd think, I mean, she in comparison to him looks very smart all the way through the film. And that's another thing that's surprising about him saying that about the underwear is that actually whenever you see Laura in the film, she looks impeccably turned out. You never see her look anything other than incredibly like she's showered and, and put on her smart clothes and all of these things. Like she's made an effort, you know. One thing I did kind of think about was, um, you know, the fact that her relationship with Ian, there is this grey area. And, and again, you know, it's not like she'd been sleeping with him while she was still with Rob. And something they touch on, he's upstairs with a former girlfriend and they're listening to him having sex. You know, and there's the, the kind of line that she says, oh, I should be so lucky. Yeah, and this is the sort of thing that plagues Rob throughout. You know, he ha- he replays these kind of innocuous jokes. I mean, the fact that she's reading "Love Thy Neighbor" probably doesn't help. But <laughs> um, there's a thing where, and I guess you kind of maybe if you're a guy, you know, of a certain persuasion, you think that's what teenage girls think of. You know, they over obsess over everything, and yet this is someone who is a man in his mid thirties who's replaying everything that might have been, could that have been the moment? Did I miss something? You know, and it's interesting, you know, when, when I first read the book, I would have been 19 and I was working at a record store on Holloway road. Oh yeah. Which, I mean, it was an hour price. So it was very much the opposite of a, a championship vinyl, but it's, um, and I kind of thought, wow, you know, this guy is me, you know, and I'm 19 and the whole world ahead of me and stuff. And yet, yes. a lot older now, and you kind of feel like I wonder if, you know, when I was nineteen, this was kind of what I thought life would be, but maybe Rob was just kind of a young guy who never, whether he never grew up or just stayed where he was or whatever it was. But um, you know, you definitely kind of feel that Laura holds, say, holds the cards because that's something that we kind of look for, but you don't want to call it the power but she definitely has she's the one who's sought after by yeah. Rob Farrell and I feel like you know everything happens because of her or in this case her she kind of just gets back together with him because it's the, the lesser of the two evil the path of least resistance I mean is that something that you saw? I disagree with you I think that Rob holds the cards okay or at least I think that I think there's a there's a there's a strong argument for that because I think that if he didn't hold hold them then I don't think he would have slept with the other person in the first place because he obviously felt sort of comp you know confident enough in the relationship that he wasn't going to lose her that he knew that he could sleep with someone else and then she could find out about it and she wouldn't leave him which is what happened originally 
And then when she did leave him, as I said, it sort of felt like she left him sort of temporarily. And then also in the film, she leaves him for Ian. And even though I think that um, Tim Robbins is really funny in the film, Ian doesn't really feel like a proper threat to Rob. You know, if she'd have left him for someone that seemed much more sort of dazzling, then I think we kind of feel that her her intention to leave Rob was more serious. And then when she returns to Rob at the end, he gets a crush on someone else and she sees him making a tape for the other person and she kind of turns a blind eye to it. She says, who are you making a tape for? And he said, oh, that girl that came in and, and she just carries on putting away groceries or whatever it is that she does. And so by the end of the film, I think, and then he gives her that speech at the end that's kind of ambivalent. And then at the end of the film, I thought, she she feels like someone that for whatever reason there's something about Rob's sort of force of personality. She wants him in her life, and I think that he has to do quite a lot for her to permanently leave him. He has to sort of strip. But I don't know. I don't know how much in terms of him him and his his thinking about his breakups. Do you think that quite often people play out the same patterns in their relationships? I think there is that element there. I mean, you know, the the idea that if she wanted to get to mess him up she have got should have got there sooner the fact that a lot of what she's doing isn't opening fresh wounds they're the kind of just reopening the old ones um yeah. you know, the echoing of the behavior from the charlie breakup is kind of the obvious one but there does seem like he is a different person i mean it's you know we can see john cusack's evolution throughout the various relationships by his hairstyle but i don't know if, if, <laughs> You know, when you said about how she leaves or Laura leaves him for Tim Robbins, this isn't, you know, again, when Catherine Zeta-Jones left him for the glamorous, and she said the word glamorous, uh, Marco, Mm. who he was petrified of from the beginning, but Ray or Ian was never a threat. And the fact that their confrontation in the record shop, it was a massive comedy moment because that's (laughs) that's something that you think you know if you're going to have this confrontation with the other person you know no matter what your gender is no matter what you're where in this triangle you're coming from you're going to be replaying or or having all these different outcomes kind of lined up in your head yeah Um, and I remember seeing at the cinema and that the uh, it was kind of like the Scooby Doo ending, but um, (laughs) the, the one where it ended up with Dick smashing him with a telephone and a air conditioner you know that that everyone in the cinema was howling at that it was hilarious and then it ended with the kind of ian having perhaps slightly having the better of it and then rob kind of shrugging and going mm, looking very sort of sheepish about it at the end. <laughs> i think i think that's a, it's it's re- it's really funny and also i think shows how quite often when people are going through breakups it's actually the other person that they get the most obsessed with in some ways rather than the actual person that's left you you get fixated on what this new person is doing with your with your old love one of the lines was you know the best sex anyone's having in the world is the one that she's having with him (laughs) it's you know everything there is such (laughs) it's it's difficult because you kind of think like automatically instinctively i put myself in rob's position and wonder how you know how would i be how would i react I guess that's probably normal human nature. I mean, did did you find that you, you sort of saw? Did you see it through Rob's eyes or through Laura's eyes or uh, the relate like the whole yeah, the whole sorry. thing? Um, inter- I I think that I see. 
I think I see it through predominantly through Rob's eyes because he's he's taking us through it and also I do recognize a certain amount of myself in Rob and also and this is an insight into my relationships I think more than one boyfriend of mine has watched High Fidelity with me and compared me to Barry so <laughs> Rob top five musical crimes perpetrated by Stevie Wonder in the 80s and 90s go sub question is it in fact unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for his latter-day sins is it better to burn out than to fade away you're fucking broke man Jesus. i do understand their whole music geekery i'm i'm there in all of its kind of you know annoying shades so so i relate to i relate to their world in in that respect but having said that there is something about rob that is my kind of there are aspects of him that is my worst nightmare in terms of someone to go out with that that kind of person who seems really perpetually dissatisfied no matter what you do is and um and actually in terms of the the killer lines we were we were talking about i think my favorite line maybe in the film or quite possibly in the film is is the one that's delivered by Catherine Zeta-Jones, which is Marco just seemed to be a bit more glamorous, more sure of himself, less hard work, a little sunnier, sparkier. And I think that's, it's very good because it's it's po quite possibly the only person in the film that says something to Rob that you really feel is accurate about how how it is to go out with Rob. You know, he's saying all of these judgmental things all the way through the film about other people. And then someone says something to him that kind of nails what the experience is of being with him. You know? The fact that he does flit, you know, he has crushes throughout. There's Marie, there's the, the woman from the newspaper. There's always a distraction. There's always something there that he's looking for. He always seems to be looking for the next thing, even at that point where he's presumably at his lowest, you know, and, and the part, you know, and this is something I kind of, I really identified with. And I think both, when I read the book the first time and, and, and more recently where, you know, Barry, Dick and Rob go to see Marie and they have this conversation about dating a musician. And as, I don't know, a civilian, you know, you're not in the industry in any kind of performing arts, you know, that there is this glamour that you see around these kind of things where, you know, Rob says, I want to live with a musician and she could write songs and ask me what I thought of them and, there is that kind of looking behind the curtain and being, you know, we could talk about that in other films where people from different backgrounds mix. Yeah. And I, I just kind of, you know, you always think about that as well. You know, he still has these dreams and all these, you know, where Laura interrogates him about his top five jobs, four of them he couldn't do because they're based on time or a place he couldn't be. And then in the end, the fifth one is architect. What is it about Rob, do you think, that has had... Because I, I don't know if you agree, but I think maybe along with Chandler Bing and a few other people from the preceding decade, he's had a really big influence on culture and particularly on men. There's something about the character of Rob that I think a lot of men relate to. And, and it's not that I don't understand why, but what do you think as a man... What is it about Rob that makes him a sort of, the, the, you know, this anti-hero that people relate to and, and kind of look up to, I think, in some ways, even though he does have all of these flaws? I think, you know, even though he's painted as, you know, he's, he's 
maybe not emotionally as mature there are elements you know he has a he collects something and he's very knowledgeable around it you know it might be records it might be football shirts it might be stamps you know anything like that he's got this kind of um and I think as well there is that you know that and it sounds weird but if this film was made with I know Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio there'd be it'd be difficult to see him as more as an everyman and I think if you look at comparing to Chandler Bing you know Chandler wasn't he was perhaps the one of the more ordinary looking friends you know these six attractive people but he was perhaps you know one that might look a bit more like someone you know and not this kind of a-list celebrity John Cusack is good at doing that I don't know how he does it he's a it's a bit like Paul Rudd where it's someone who's actually very handsome who's somehow managing to convince you that he looks like everyone you meet exactly and it's quite a trick it's a it's really very clever don't know how they do it (laughs) and I think that's kind of how it works as a as something that you can identify with um because you know people watch films and they see ridiculously attractive people having mundane problems and maybe maybe it's me you just kind of think well you can't have real problems because you're good looking Um, (laughs) you know whereas in this it's kind of it does feel a little bit more grounded it's not set in Beverly Hills it's not you know everyone's willing you know that he lives in a fairly grubby flat he has a job that's again what would strike a lot of people as a dream job even if he's sort of losing money I don't know I think there is just that kind of everyman thing and the fact that he does have these sort of nightmares and he has Bruce Springsteen as an imaginary friend I mean that would be awesome I want more I want to see the others on the big top five I want to see Penny and Charlie and Sarah all of them you know just see him and talk to him you know like a Bruce Springsteen song you call, you ask them how they are, and see if they forgive me. Yeah, and then, and then I'd feel good. And they'd feel good. Well, they'd feel good maybe, but, but you'd feel better. I'd feel clean and calm. That's what you're looking for. You want to get ready to start again? That'd be good for you. Give that big final good luck and goodbye to your all-time top five and just move on down the road. Thanks, boss. They do quite a clever thing in the film, don't they? I think with your your emotions and their relationship, where they use they use that lovely Bob Dylan song most of the time when they're together in the when he meets her after her dad's funeral. And then at the end, they use that lovely Stevie Wonder song. And I was sort of thinking about how that, you know, really beautiful songs can elicit a sort of emotional response from the listener. It's quite a clever way in a film of making you feel as if they might be happily, living happily ever after. It makes you feel like maybe their relationship will play out like the song. So. And in a film like this, they need to get the music right. And they do. I mean, it's a fantastic soundtrack and there's a, a good mix of... The, the music in there and it's played well you know you've got the the Barry White music when Rob's dreading <laughs> Laura and Ian together there's his whole point at the end around how liking Marvin Gaye and Art Garfunkel is like siding with the Israelis and the Palestinians a provocative comment for sure but, um, yes she she is perhaps the you know what what you'd expect a, the average person to be is just like I like their songs I don't care 
Yeah, <laughs> In the book, she's very into Simply Red, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they get that thing in the, in, in the book she's, she's um, made them look. Well, that's, obviously people will, you know, when you're in a couple, you'll, you'll like different kinds of music. But in the book, it's very striking, the, the difference between their, their musical tastes. It's, it's, it almost starts to feel a bit, a bit unlikely that she met him when he was DJing in this really cool club where he was playing this old Solomon Burke record and she really liked it because then when you find out what music she does listen to day in day out it doesn't seem to reflect the same thing but I think she makes a joke in the book about how she was just being a bit shameless by telling her she had excellent music taste at the beginning of her relationship because she quite fancied it. I mean when we look at um, sort of wrapping up I mean it's, it's difficult we've you know in, in this kind of film and you don't want to we don't want to say there's winners and losers but I mean in terms of a conclusion I mean, the fact that they got together at the end and everyone's smiling and it ends on a, a lovely song, you know, and everyone, you know, even Barry has had his his moment in the spotlight with some surprisingly good singing. Yeah, um, it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, again, a, a fine choice of song. But um, do, do you think that it was a convincing relationship throughout? I mean, was did you find it authentic, you know, realistic? I think it's very realistic and I think that's why that's why high fidelity is both both the book and the film uh, are still things that everyone uh, sort of refers to to this day because there's something about the nature of it that does feel quite real but on the other hand I can also see why they I haven't seen the remake at all but I can see why there'd be kind of a a need to remake High Fidelity where you put a woman at the centre of it because as I say there's something about it when you watch it now maybe particularly now I'm a little bit older where I think the men are the people that are kind of the sort of gate holders to um, you know things like music and art in general and, and the women are kind of there to be quite sensible and to have sensible jobs while the men are erratic and unpredictable and complicated and difficult and when I'm watching it, I think, you know, women are just as erratic and unreliable and complicated and difficult as men are. So when you see films like this, you kind of feel the pressure to be kind of saintly in the way that Laura is and just to sort of put up with everything. And when I was watching it this time, I thought, oh, God, I could never do what Laura's doing in this film. She's so tolerant and she never snaps at him. And even when he's being a complete nightmare. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that? It feels like something that's still significant today. I think so, and I, I think I mean that there has been, you know, there, there were some articles when the film hit sort of twenty years old last year about you know has has Rob's behaviour you know in that time become something that with twenty 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 one eyes are slightly more difficult you know the the pursuing the harassing that kind of stuff but you know ultimately. You know, it was of its time. Even the book was written in the mid '90s, and I guess now, you know, it might be slightly easier because there would be, I don't know, social media, text messaging, WhatsApp, that kind of thing. Where, you know, perhaps in in the TV series, that that might have been explored, and perhaps it would be a bit easier having, again, that the character they they've gender flipped a lot of it, but the character's name is still Rob. Yes, you know, Zoe Kravitz. You know, which weirdly was Lisa Bonet's daughter. I mean, the way the character was written in the book was so well done. 
I think it gives people of both whichever side of the story you happen to be on or whatever gender you are or whatever whatever role you might play in a relationship that there's something there that anyone can identify with um, yeah well there's that really effective bit in the book and I think they were good they were going to put it in the film but they cut it out the bit where he originally talks about the different things that went wrong between them and then he says to the you know the reader or the viewer um, before you judge you go and write down all the things that you've done wrong in your relationship or the ways in which you've treated your partner badly especially if they didn't know that you'd done them so you go and write them down and then tell me who's the bastard you know that's a really clever clever device isn't it to kind of get your audience to stop judging everything so much and to think a little bit more from their own point of view about all the kind of ways in which they fucked up in life and I think that's probably why high fidelity is quite is so often cited is because it is something that kind of takes you through quite a lot of the minutiae of the ways in which everyone messes up doesn't it it's quite universal and you know you can take the story out of move it from Hertfordshire or Crouch End over to Chicago and uh, it's still just as good it works just as well they just needed to change the change nationwide to the Rockford files I think that was the only thing yes yes completely <laughs> life begins so we'll leave you with the eternal question what came first the music or the misery I've been Rich I've been Kat and this has been Don't You Want Me the many sounds that meet our ears, the sights our eyes behold, will open up our merging hearts and feed our empty souls. I believe when I fall in love with you, it will be forever. I believe when I fall in love, this time. Yeah, in the jungle.